0: This morning, I'm going to start on a subject while we were at the men's conference. It was just one of the phrases that was made by the pastor. said, oh, I I really think the Lord wants me to preach on that. And began to work on a sermon and soon found out that there was no way uh, I was going to fit that thought into one sermon. And so I'm going to have to ask you, if you really want to get this, uh, this morning is going to be the introduction... And uh, next week will be point one, and uh, we're going to stretch this out over several weeks because we're really dealing with the theme of the entire Scripture. And that theme of this book called the Bible is really a paradox or a conflict. It is life in Christ, amen? But it is the death of self. And this morning what I want to do, by God's grace, is to try to lay out the conflict that is there in the Scripture and to help introduce and examine the subjects we'll cover over the next several weeks because as we think about Easter coming up in a few weeks, that is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ... And sometimes people ask the question, why, why did Christ have to die? And why did he have to suffer so much so that we could have life? And then on the other extreme, people want to take this life and freedom that Christ gives and use it to serve themselves and to meet their needs. In fact, uh, the most popular nonfiction book other than the Bible in print today, is called The Purpose Driven Life. And uh, I, I want to challenge you today, if you have read that book, to understand one thing. It takes what the Bible teaches and turns it inside out. It takes what God wants you and I to have and reverses it into a service formula so I can get from God what I want. In the book of Jude, it talks about those who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And that means that somehow God is supposed to give me what I want. And I've had many people... I uh, uh, who's said over the years, but, but Pastor, why does God put these desires in my heart? Well, let me tell you something. God didn't put all those desires in your heart. Some of them come from yourself. And that brings this great conflict. And, and I want us to start in John chapter 8 this morning. John chapter 8. And Jesus was trying to teach... And help people understand, of course, if you will read the gospel record here, you'll find that Jesus' sharpest contention was not with the sinner crowd. It wasn't with what we might call today uh, the nightclub crowd or uh, the people that uh, wanted their own way, the pagans and the heathens and, and those that totally disregard the Bible. That was not the source of Jesus' sharpest contention. The sharpest contention in Jesus' preaching in His ministry was for those that had religion. And a lot of it. Because if we're going to serve Christ, we've got to understand something. You cannot serve Christ and. You cannot believe in Christ and. You cannot desire Christ and. It's got to be Christ alone. And there starts the conflict. Because it's hard for us. uh, Maybe this will help you a little bit. How many of you remember Christmas time? They got those boxes of all the different kinds of chocolates. And mom would open it up and she'd say, One. Anybody else have a mean mother like I did? Now, what was your first thought? Three, four. How many of you snuck into the candy box when Mom wasn't looking and then uh, got sick and, and and all those other problems later? Um, it, it's hard for us to look and say, I'll just take that one and be satisfied with that one. There's there's just something in human nature that makes us think that well, if one's good, two's better, right? Uh if one helping was good, let's let's get some more. I I want to challenge you. that's the way we are wired and we are designed not because that was the way God in, in, originally intended us. But Lord willing, next week we'll go through the, the Garden of Eden and, and, and start at the very beginning. And look at this conflict that, that is there. But in verse 36 of John chapter 8, as Jesus was literally arguing here with this religious crowd... He, he told them, He said, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And we go back to verse 34. Well, let's go back to verse 33. And they answered, these were the Pharisees, the religious crowd, we be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, Ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, who so committeth sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Now, this is what Jesus was talking about. The Bible, I I have yet to meet an honest person who disagrees with the Bible when the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, I I will be honest with you, I've met dishonest people uh, as well as you have. Who would say, well, I've never really done anything that wrong. We're not talking about anything that wrong. What we're talking about is sin. Sin is defined by the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. That means if there's ever been a time, if there's ever been a decision in your life, Where you place someone or some intention or thoughts or process in front of God, you've broken the first commandment. My challenge is, in order to break any of the rest of the nine remaining ones, you've got to break the first one first. People say, well, listen, I don't bow down to graven images and I don't worship statues. Yes, but... uh, do we give reverence to things and people that belongs only to God? I'll tell you, we've all broken that second commandment giving the attention that belongs to God to something else. And we could go through the list and we'll find and if you're really concerned about this, read what Jesus says about them in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't say you have to go out and commit murder to be guilty of murder. He said, if you hate, he said, you're guilty of murder in my thoughts. Because no one has ever committed murder without hating first. He said, you don't have to go out and find a partner to commit adultery if you'll lust in your heart. You've already done it in your mind. And these things happen because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet Jesus came and he said that if I make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Turn with me to John chapter 10 if you would. John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus again was speaking with the religious crowd here. He was trying to help them understand that the way of their religion and their understanding of religion was not going to lead them to life, that, that they had to come to Jesus. And in verse 10, he said, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and destroy. I am come that they might have life, and they they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. We look at these verses, and, and we could go to dozens of others, as Jesus claimed, To give life. To be the source of life. He told the Pharisees, If you do not believe that I am He, you're going to die in your sins. That was in John chapter 8. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. That's John chapter 1. And and I could spend the whole morning looking at verses... But I want you to understand something. Life is in Christ. It is the only place you're going to go. In Acts chapter 4, when Jesus' disciples were called into question, they said, there is none other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This is not new. This is the sermon that we've preached ever since there's been a sermon to preach at Open Door Bible Baptist Church. We understand that there is life in Christ. And yet, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, if you would. And of course, Matthew chapter 16 is very famous because this is where Jesus announced the beginning, the founding, and the building of His church. By the way, read the passage carefully and clearly there. He was not giving Peter anything other than the ability to preach the first sermon in to the Jew, the first sermon to the Gentile, which Peter did in the book of Acts. But when Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, He was talking about Himself. And He said, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And He said, I will build my church. And we come down here to the Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24... Jesus had just got finished rebuking Peter because he savored the things of man and not the things of God. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall shall find it. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in, his, in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. Now here we have the conflict, do we not? Jesus said, I've come to give you life. I've come to give you that life abundantly. We go through all the different passages are in the Bible. And then over here in Matthew chapter 16, He says, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If you're going to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you're going to lose your life, you're going to save it. Now that doesn't sound very fun, now does it? And so as we look at these verses... we run into two basic types of Christianity. We run into the one that says, Listen, I've been made free. I can do anything I want. I have liberty in Christ. I'm just going to have fun. And then you get over here to the other side. And uh, I don't know how else to describe them. Just a sad sack group of people look like they were... Uh, weaned on a lemon and baptized in dill pickle juice. Very sour, of course. And and, and they're down about everything and they hate everybody and everything. And, and you say, are there really churches like that? Oh, yeah. But let me ask you a question. Is either one more wrong than the other? say, wait a minute, you didn't say that right. Yeah, I did. You see, they're both just as wrong as they can be. You're not serving Christ just because you say no to everything anymore than you're serving Christ because you go out and do whatever you want. You serve Christ because you serve Christ. Because you do the things that he says. Because you follow his words. And the problem is, we as people, we are the pendulum on the clock, one extreme to the other. We forget that it's the middle mark that makes the pendulum work. If the pendulum didn't swing exactly to the same distance, both sides of the center mark, the pendulum would not keep swinging. It would stop. And what Christ is trying to get us to do is stop swinging. Read Ephesians chapter 4. To be settled... To be grounded in His Word, not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the slight of man, uh, their cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. You see, I'm a little frustrated with both groups, amen? I want us to turn to another and again, I, I hope you follow me, listen closely, because we're going to be laying out the conflict today. We'll be trying to find resolution in the next several weeks. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 119. And a couple of years ago, we went through Psalm 119. We went through it verse by verse uh, if you like Hebrews, strove for each group of eight verses together. Uh, we went through them one by one. It took us almost a year to just go through the book. Uh, uh, I mean through this one chapter in the book of Psalms, but Psalm 119 and Psal one, uh, verse 109, I mean verse 96, Psalm 119, verse 96. The psalmist, uh, we, we believe it was David, but we're not sure here, and it really doesn't matter. This morning, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, said, I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. Now, I know we're just yanking this verse out all by itself, but... Every verse in Psalm 119 is speaking about God's law. He said, I've seen an end of all perfection. He's saying, I have seen the best that man can do. Uh, I remember years ago when I was just a young student, we were uh, talking about different things and And there were a group of scientists and and mechanically minded machinist scientists who made what they said was the world's smallest screw. And, uh, I mean, you had to have a magnifying glass to see this thing. I mean, it was, but it was a real screw. It was made out of metal. It had threads on it. And they sent it to a group of scientists in uh, Austria, I believe, and said, look what we've done. We've made the world's smallest screw. Well, they drilled a hole in it and put threads inside the hole, tapped it, and sent it back. You see, no matter what man does, he sets a standard, and then all you have to do is go one step further and you've beat the standard how many of you are you tired of the stock market reaching a new record high i mean how many record highs can it well it's only got to go one point higher than it did before and we have a new record high jesus is trying to help us understand something here the word of god he said i've seen an end of all perfection all you got to do is go one step further and you re perfect perfection he said but he said but thy commandment is exceeding broad I want you to keep that thought in mind and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Thy commandment is exceeding broad. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leadeth to destruction, and many be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. In Luke chapter 13, the disciples asked Jesus a question, Are there few that be saved? And Jesus' answer was, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. You see, the commandment is exceeding broad. The psalmist said, I've seen the utmost that man can do. He said, but when I get to God's laws, He said, they are so vast, I can't find the end of them. They are so extraordinarily large, I cannot comprehend all there is to God's laws. And yet Jesus said here in the New Testament that straight... Where we get the term straight jacket? Straight is the gate, narrow is the way. How many of you like to be in narrow, confining places? I mean, I will never be a spelunker. How many people know what one of those is? Those are people that go exploring caves. They say that you have to crawl through very narrow places. No, I'll wait until the engineers have gone in and dug it all out and put up lights and a footpath. Then I'll go look at the cave. How about you? How many are on my side with that one? Oh, good. Uh, I'm just not one of those guys that's going to put a headlamp on my thing and put on a wetsuit and go sliding over rocks and trying to see what the smallest little piece I can get through crack I can squeeze through, uh, so that I can see something that God already knew was there. I mean, that's my perspective, amen? But Jesus said here, if you don't strive to enter in that straight gate, if you don't squeeze yourself to go in that narrow way, you're not going to find life. And yet, the psalmist says the commandment is exceeding broad. Now, I want to try to bring this conflict into focus by looking at how it was acted out in the lives uh, of people in two separate situations. One, we're fairly well familiar. Let's turn to Mark chapter 10. And this is the story that we call the rich young ruler. His story is told in Matthew and Luke, and and, and, and of course here in the book of Mark. And we find out a little bit more from him and the different stories that are told by the other apostles. But I, I just love the powerful wording in verse 21. And we'll cut right to the chase here. It says, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, give it to the poor, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. Now let's flesh this story out a little bit. Look at verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, Jesus had done his teaching and he was moving on. There came one running and kneeled to him and said, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, I want to challenge you today. That's the right question. And he was asking the right person. Amen? Amen? I mean, he was asking Jesus what needed to be done so that he could have, so that he could inherit eternal life. I mean, he even, in his choice of words had a much greater understanding of the truth than than you and I might give him credit for. An inheritance was something that was passed on for someone else. An inheritance is something you didn't earn. You see, you can't earn eternal life. Contrary to popular belief, it's something that God has and He will pass it on to those who can receive it. Do you know how you receive something as an inheritance? you got to be written down in the will. Your name's got to be on there. When uh, Howard Hughes died, I think there were upwards of eight forged wills that came to light... Trying, for people trying to put their name on the line to inherit his billions. You know who got it, don't you? The lawyers. About 80%. And the only living relative that he sorely hated got the other 20 You know, that's the way things work in real life. But this rich young ruler, he said, I understand something. I can't earn eternal life. It's not something I deserve. It's something that God will give to those that, that he names, that he'll put in his will. And, and I want to be put there. I like this guy so far. But most of us know where he ends up. And Jesus gives him the pat answer. Why does Jesus do that? Because he wants an admission that pat answers don't work. That the common reasoning does not hold water, we might say. Does not hold any weight with God. Amen? He said, keep the commandments. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these I have observed from my youth. He said, I've kept all these all my life. And what was the absolute admission when he said this? Wait a minute. He showed up asking for what? to have his name put in God's will that he should inherit eternal life, right? I mean, we could look at it that way. He wanted to have eternal life because he knew he didn't have it. And Jesus said, well, hey, you've heard all your life. Keep the Ten Commandments. Here they are. He says, yeah, I know, but I've done that didn't work. Jesus said, okay, this will work. Sell everything you have. Give it away. Give it to those who could use it. He said, I'll give you treasure in heaven that will far outweigh anything you can have here on earth. He said, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Now, I want you to understand something. When we hear take up the cross, it does not mean to you and me what it meant to the rich young ruler. Less than a generation before this rich young ruler was born. Less than a hundred years, we should say. I'm not sure all the exact timing here, but the armies of Rome swept down through what is in the Bible called Asia Minor, or Asia and modern-day Turkey, and had come down through the land of Israel, into Palestine and had subjugated all of those people and incorporated them into what we now call the Roman Empire. Now, the Romans had an interesting way of making sure that people knew they were in charge. There was a highway that ran straight down through the land of Israel, Damascus right down through Samaria, uh, uh, right past Jerusalem, And they took that highway and they cut down a tree and stuck it in the ground and took a Jewish man and stuck him on the tree. It was called crucifixion. And they lined that highway with crosses. And on every cross they put a Jewish man. And they said, if you want any more trouble like this, just start something. We'll show you how it's done. That's the way the Romans did things. It was harsh. It was cruel. When Jesus said, Take up the cross, this man had a whole lot different vision of it than you and I do. And you know what he said? Let's read the Bible. Verse 22. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Now I want you to look at what Jesus did in verse 23. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Now, you've got to get the picture here. Here comes this fellow running into the way, kneeling in the ground before Jesus, saying, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Imagine in our modern day time um, the mayor of New York City, uh, a United States senator, running out into the street and kneeling down before an individual, a preacher, and saying, Tell me how to live. We'd say this has got to be some kind of Hollywood stunt. What kind of news program is this? But I mean, this this man was a ruler. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was a very wealthy and powerful man. He had inherited everything he had. We know that because he was young. He didn't have the time to work up into it. And he's standing there in the presence, kneeling there in the presence of Jesus. And they go back and forth. Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one good, that's God. And you'll notice the rich young ruler never called him good again. Because he didn't believe Jesus was God. And he looked at himself, his position, his wealth, and he looked at Jesus. And he said, am I going to give up everything for that? Just so I can follow him? I've got my own religion. He just admitted his religion didn't work. He said, am I going to get rid of everything I have so that I can have something I cannot see or understand? And he gets up out of the dirt... And he begins to dust himself off and restore himself to the dignity of his office and position. And the Bible tells he went away sorrowful, weeping. Because he knew he was turning his back on eternal life. But he wasn't going to give up what he had so he could follow Jesus. And Jesus... As we hear here, he calls attention to the situation. The man is walking away, weeping. And Jesus says, listen everybody. You have no understanding how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, you talk about rubbing salt in the wound. But at the beginning of that verse it says, Jesus beheld him and what? Loved him. Well, why was he being so mean if he loved him? Because he was trying to help him understand that it took an awful lot to turn loose of your riches and accept Jesus. In fact, he continued in one of the most famous misquoted passages in all the Bible. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. was part of Jesus. And Jesus wasn't just mumbling it in a corner. He was saying it so that man could hear those words as he walked away. He said, with God, nothing shall be impossible. But with man, that's not the case. There are many things that are impossible to man. You see, this is the conflict that we're talking about. We have the free and abundant life that Jesus promised versus the self-denial and taking up the cross that Jesus said you must do. We have the exceeding broad commandment that is talked about in the great treatise on the word of God versus the straight gate in a narrow way which is so narrow that there are many people that will try, they'll fight, they'll give everything they have and they still won't be able to fit through the gate. You see, we have the rich young ruler who said no. Now I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I'd like to just set some context here. This is an amazing chapter in the Bible. Jesus had fed the 5,000 on the shore of Galilee, He had sent the disciples back across the uh, the Sea of Galilee in the night. The Sea of Galilee is about five miles wide. And somewhere between three and five o'clock in the morning, while it was the darkest, Jesus comes walking across the water and the disciples see Him and are scared out of their wits. And Peter walks on the water and sinks and gets put back in the boat and, and uh, they all get to the other side and the people that were on the far side where Jesus had fed the 5,000 wake up the next morning and spent the night there on the grassy slopes there overlooking the Sea of Galilee and said, Jesus is gone, let's go find him. And when they find Jesus on the other side they begin quite a lengthy discussion. And Jesus tells them, listen, the only reason you're seeking me is because you want to be fed for free. Somebody said, there is no free lunch. Well, let me tell you, this one came about as close as you could get. Because the little boy only had what a little boy would eat a few sardines and soda crackers, probably barley crackers, and 5,000 men and women and children ate because Jesus performed a miracle. They said, Lord, let's, let's do this again. That's pretty good. I mean, it wouldn't be so hard to live if you didn't have to pay for food, wouldn't it? And Jesus said, listen, you need to do the works of my Father. And they said, well, what are they? He said, it's to believe on me. He said, but you've already decided you're not going to do that. And Jesus began a conversation that ended with Jesus saying to them, and we've often brought this forth as one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. It's, it's amazing to me. People spiritualize everything in the Bible. And the, one of the few passages where Jesus said, I'm speaking to you of spiritual things, they make it physical things. I mean, read, read with me verse 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit And they are life. When Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven, if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give uh, is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Jesus said, I'm speaking about spiritual things, not physical things. We're not cannibals. He said, When I give my blood and ask you to drink my blood, he said, I'm not speaking of physical things. We're not vampires. He said, I'm talking about spiritual things. And yet you can go into churches where they make those claims. That's scary stuff to me. I like the story they tell of medieval England. A man was Church of England and they believed that, in fact, at that time they executed people. For not claiming that the physical presence of Jesus' flesh was in the in the bread, and that His physical blood was not in the wine that they drank, and, and they, they literally would put people on trial. and And uh, this man and married a, a Baptist woman, and there were Baptists in those days. and And uh, finally, he continued to hound her and hassle her, and she said, "Okay, I'll become a Catholic." On one condition. He says, you invite the priest over to the house and you let me bake the bread for the sacrament and if he'll bless it and partake of it, then I'll become a Catholic. And he went and talked to the priest and said, my stubborn wife's finally agreed to become a Catholic. All she wants to do is make the bread. And so they came over and and the wife went to the priest and said, now listen, I... I want to understand something. You said that when you pray a prayer over this bread, it gets transformed from ordinary bread into the very body and flesh of Jesus Christ. He said, yes, that's what we believe. He said, well, then the fact that I bake the bread with arsenic is not going to hurt anybody, right? Arsenic is a very deadly poison. And for some strange reason, the priest got all mad and started cursing and walked out and never talked to him again. And the husband decided he'd become a Baptist. I like that story. See, people believe all kinds of incredible things and they use religion for an excuse. Jesus never asked us to believe anything incredible. I mean, he's asked us to believe some things we don't understand. But is it okay for God to be bigger than your understanding? Is it okay that God maybe not answer all your questions? I mean, if you're a parent, do you answer all your children's questions? You just wait, Brother Franz. Little Franzito is going to go, why? And finally, you're going to say, because Daddy said so, that's why. It works. Is it okay for God to say, because I said so? You see, I want you to go down to verse 66 of this chapter. It says, from that time, many of His disciples, these were Jesus' disciples, not the twelve apostles, of course, but many people who followed Him and claimed to be His disciple. It says, many of them went back and walked no more with Him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. You see, again, I want you to understand that we're just laying out the conflict today. I want us, over the next several weeks... And if you're only here today, I am sorry, you can get the sermons when we put them on the website if you want. But you'll, you'll need to get the next several weeks in order to really get a hold of what we're talking about here. But, you see, the disciples really didn't understand an awful lot. In fact, they didn't even understand that in just a few chapters of this book called "The Bible," that Jesus was going to be crucified. And they didn't understand about his resurrection, though he had told them many times, though the Pharisees understood that Jesus made a claim for the resurrection, the apostles didn't, not until he stood there in their midst. But you know something, they had one thing right. They said, to whom shall we go? There's no other place to go. We know who you are. That you are the Christ. The Son of the living God. That you are life. That you are love. That you are truth. And there is none else. We're we're just going to stay with you. You know, I've dealt with people many times about their souls. And they'll say, Pastor, I just don't understand. Join the crowd. There's an awful lot I don't understand about God. And you know what? I'm glad. I'm glad that He's a whole lot bigger than I am. I'm glad that he doesn't have to answer to me with what he does and that he refuses to subjugate himself to my whims and fancies, that he does what is best in his sight because he is good and he is God. And he really doesn't, he's not worried about what I think or how I understand it. He is God, and he's going to do what's best. But he condescends to me to give me this whole book called the Bible to explain it. And there's always a little mystery when we talk about God because there's just parts of him we can't get. But I think as clearly as I can in the scripture, using the scripture as our illustration this morning, these were not just idle words penned down, but these were real life experiences of people. We see the conflict of the ages. The rich young ruler, am I going to give up my dignity and my position? Am I going to give up all of my possessions? Am I going to throw away everything that has been given to me by my family, my heritage so that I can follow him? Rich young ruler said, don't think so. He was broken up about it. And in spite of Jesus' Explaining as he was walking away that only an act of God could cause a man to do this, he refused to admit that Jesus was God and came back and asked him to do it. You know, Jesus will save anybody, all you have to do is ask him. Or, he'd be like the disciples. Lord, we have no idea what you just said. We know everybody's mad and they're leaving. And we're not quite sure that we understand what you said. And there's a part of us that's really thinking that this whole thing's kind of crazy and maybe we ought to go over there, but we know something more important than what we know. What we understand, we know you're the Christ, you have the words of eternal life, and we're just going to stay with you. See, every person has to make that decision. And if you'll take the Bible, you'll find it's full of conflict. Just to touch on some of the topics there, we'll talk about the greatest freedom mankind has ever experienced for themselves, Lord willing, next week. And the slavery it brought. Versus the taking up of the cross and the giving up of everything that a person possesses to find Christ only to find the greatest blessings and freedom that life has to offer. Those things are paradoxical, if you like that terminology. They're an unresolved conflict. How that the gate can be straight and narrow. And yet, David, if he were the author of Psalm 119, says, thy commandment is exceeding broad. How did I give up everything to possess that which money cannot buy? Jesus said, what shall a man give in exchange for a soul? I've tried this morning to lay out the conflict. I am hoping in the next few weeks, to flesh this thing out and to help us investigate. from We're going to go from cover to cover over the next few weeks, from Genesis to Revelation. And I want you to be here and be a part of that. But I also want you to understand one thing. The rich wrong ruler understood the decision he was making. And he turned his back on Christ and we never hear from him again. When we see him on judgment day, he'll still be sad. He said, but I couldn't give it up. We have the disciples. You see, it tells me in the Bible that one day we'll know as He is known, one day we will understand it. But not in this life. Because there's a little thing called faith that we need. And that is to believe that life is only in Christ and in nothing else. And that's what salvation is. And that's how we live for Him. And I'll tell you, you'll get freedom by becoming Christ's servant. Much more than you'll ever have trying to serve yourself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning And Lord, it just feel so small and insignificant dealing with these things in Your Word. And just ask, Lord, that You would work in hearts and lives today. Lord, I just pray that if there be someone who is here this morning that does not know you as their Savior. That they would place themselves with the disciples and simply believe that you are the Christ, that you have the words of eternal life, and to let rest on you the burden of those things that would have to be laid aside to embrace Christ. Lord, we pray for those that may be struggling right now, but I'm not sure I can give it up. That Lord David grasped the words of Jesus said in love, not in derision. That with God, all things are possible. If we'll just come to Him, He will do the work. Lord, we ask. That you would challenge our thinking, our emotions, and our souls to serve you in these last days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.